Blog Talk Radio. It's time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646 716 4972. Now, here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. It is Monday, March 7th, 2022. Good to have you with us. This podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're so grateful to have you as our listener. Again, our time, our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. We are broadcasting live from the Lenders One Winter Conference here in Scottsdale, Arizona. We're at the JW Marriott. It's a glorious facility. It's cold here, oh guys. Talking to my wife yesterday, and it was warmer there in Texas than it was in uh, here in Phoenix by, I mean, by 15 degrees. It's it's really cold. Anyway, it's good to have you here with us. We are warmed by your many comments, and many of you give us so much feedback about how this podcast is helping you stay on top of things. So thank you. Always looking for things we could do better. So we'd love to hear from you, and. Uh, That is always welcome. So let's get into it. Today we have in the Hot Topics segment, Chris Zingo. He is General Manager of the Americas Field of Operation for Finastra. And we're going to be discussing uh, mortgage lending in 2022, as well as the broader picture of what's going on with technology and how it is being driven through ESG and an acceleration of digital technology in the mortgage world. We pre-recorded this interview because I knew I was going to be here at the conference, uh, so we pre-recorded it last week, but I'm really excited to share with you. Finastra is such a major list, uh, uh, industry participant technology company, and we're so grateful to have them also as a sponsor. So stay tuned to the Hot Topic segment. Also, I want to say special thank you to Industry Syndicate. We have a great partnership with them. They do a great job of promoting our podcast as well as other podcasts. Check out IndustrySyndicate.com, and I encourage you to see all the podcasts there. Hey, another word. Next week, I will be in Las Vegas, and uh, it's a part of the Lender Toolkit has invited me to come in. We're going to be doing a podcast uh, recordings from there, and it's an exciting event, and it'll be Monday, uh, March 14th at the ICE Experience 2002, but it would be the Lender Toolkit group that I'm in there with. And we're going to be running around, we're going to be going out to a racetrack and running around with Ferraris. Can you believe that? This is tough work, guys. You guess someone's got to do it, though. Got to get in a Ferrari, drive fast around the track. And we're going to be doing that for many of you. Encourage you, if you haven't already gotten a hold of the folks at Lender Toolkit, it's not too late. You too can participate in this. But also, I want to encourage anyone there in Las Vegas at the ICE Experience 2000, again, um, Intercontinental Exchange, which is ICE, which bought LMA, uh, and they're doing a great job putting on their annual conference at there. But So check out Lender Toolkit's booth at booth number 67 there. Hope you can make it out to the racetrack. I'd love to see you there. A lot of us are going to have some fun riding those cars. Don't worry. They're well insured. You don't have to worry about it. Although it is, there's a pucker factor when you're driving around in a really expensive vehicle like that and in a race car because 
combination of responsibility and testosterone all showing up at the same time. I'm excited to have Jack Nunnery joining us again on this podcast. He is. He's a regular now. He's co-hosting this podcast with me. And as soon as I get done here, I'm going to go in and into the, the main session. And my good friend Casey Crawford is going to be speaking. So I'll be meeting up with him here in a few minutes. So we're going to get through these introductions and then toss it to Jack and let him take it from here. So I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, the Mortgage Bankers Association of America. Uh, very thrilled to have them as part of us and their sponsorship, as well as Finastra. Again, we're going to have Chris Zingo today Zingo as the uh, special guest. Also, Lenders One. Pleased to be at this conference with them. Also, Mortgage Collaborative. We will be to be at the TMC Mortgage Collaborative uh, Miami Night Conference, March 19th through the 22nd. Uh, be sure to go listen to the interview with Rich Zerbinski on February 7th. Both these co-ops great, create great competitive advantages for both lenders and vendors. We're thrilled and honored to be here at this conference. Also, I encourage you to check out Total Expert. It turns customer insights into actions to increase loyalty and drive growth for banks, lenders, credit unions, and other financial firms. I went through a demo this last week, and I was blown away with what Total Expert can do to help lenders and connect and have meaningful relationships. Amazing stuff. Also, Knowledge Group, thrilled to have them here. Saw the, many of them here at this conference, as well as Mobility MMI, which is the mortgage market intelligence. They do a great job of helping recruit top loan officers, as does Modex, a mortgage recruiting technology tool that's very effective. Also, SnapDocs is a sponsor of us, and we appreciate them. They help lenders overcome obstacles by adopting e-mortgage technology. SnapDocs is now offering an e-mortgage quick start program. Check it out. Also, check out the interview I did with Michelle Rana back on September 13th. Also, Success Kit. You know, folks, I tell you so much about Success Kit and what they can do for you in drawing in and holding on to customers. They help you tell your story. There's an old proverb I say that says, let another man's mouth praise you, not that of your own. Well, that's what Lender Success Kit does. I mean, Success Kit does. They help you as a lender interview previous customers and create a narrative that will just be engaging and help you advance your business. So be sure to check them out as well as Lender Toolkit. We've already talked about them and the experience, ICE experience next week, where I'll be there with Brent Emler and team, along with Brett. Also, PennyMac, their TPO, third-party originations platform. Check out the interview with Tim Nichols. Uh, we had November 1st of last year, as well as Form Free. Saw uh, Christy Moss there. They sponsored the opening session here, and it was a great speaker, and so fun to see the Form Free crew here. As well as DW Consulting, Debbie Weemus does a great job of helping you create an effective LinkedIn profile that'll promote you and your business successfully. Special thank you goes out to Rob, Les, Alice, Alan, Matt, and, of course, Jack. So glad to have you here. So without further ado, I'm going to toss this over to Jack, and we're going to launch it off, and he'll transition in after we hear the report from Rob Van Rapport. So, Rob, what do you have for the MBA Mortgage Minute? Take it away, Rob and Jack. Hi, I'm Rob Van Rapport. Welcome to the Mortgage Minute and the latest news from the Mortgage Bankers Association. Last week, FHFA announced that the Housing Trust Fund and Capital Magnet Fund will receive $1.138 billion in total from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for affordable housing initiatives. 
These funds are used for a variety of affordable housing activities, most notably property acquisition and improvement, as well as new construction. The funds are an approximately $45 million increase over the amounts that GSEs contributed to these programs in 2021. And be sure to register for MBA's Technology Solutions Conference and Expo happening April 11th through the 14th in Las Vegas, Nevada. To register, go to mba.org slash conferences. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for that update, Rob. Always good to hear uh, movement in affordable housing and increase of funds to help support that critical initiative. Um, A lot of great info at Rob's MBA Mortgage Minute. Uh, now we will uh, hear Les Parker uh, with TM Spotlight and this week's macro view of the markets. TM Spotlight Soundbites is brought to you by PowerSeller, making hedging easy. But markets can't tell the faults from the real. Who can they trust? Who can they trust? What fear drove gold to its highest close since its all-time highs during the first summer of COVID? A nuclear accident? World War III with nuclear weapons? Maybe gold rose because the world lost confidence in diplomacy, democracy, or leadership at the EU, NATO, and the United States. Maybe gold approached all-time highs because it doubts inflation gets under 2% soon. Or central banks keep fiat currencies alive. With so much fear, everyone wants to turn to gold. These views are my own. Overcome fear with gold at tmspotlight.com. Thank you, Les. Uh, Again, go to tmspotlight.com to subscribe for free to Les's newsletter. Use the word power. And now we go to Matt Graham with our mortgage rate update. Hey, Jack, thank you. So a very wild couple of weeks in the markets, obviously with Ukraine in focus, and that continues to be the dominant driver, but it is not necessarily doing things in a logical way uh, at every turn. And probably the most interesting thing that I've been seeing over the past few weeks is the relationship between oil and uh, bond yields. Traditionally, I've actually spent quite a few years examining and arguing with people that talk to me about how oil always moves in the same direction as bond yields. There are logical reasons that it should, because bond yields technically price in inflation and economic growth, among other things. And if oil is uh, a key indicator for inflation, it would uh, stand to reason that there's a correlation. Indeed, there is a correlation, It has broken down at times in the past when things have drastically affected currency valuations, considering oil is dollar denominated. But in general, since the pandemic, you know, happened and since uh, the time when markets bottomed out and started to move back toward higher rates in mid 2020, oil prices and bond yields have indeed been rising together with fairly decent correlation. The Ukraine situation, a lot of us thought, uh, you know, before things even flared up as much as they have now, that there would be a spike in oil prices and that that could put paradoxical upward pressure on rates that would otherwise be experiencing downward pressure due to their role as sort of a safe haven risk off sort of trade. 
What we've ended up seeing is a weird hybrid of that where the bond market actually does get that safe haven bid, that risk off momentum that we're used to seeing in geopolitical flare-ups. But it is also getting pulled back in the other direction by spikes in oil prices. And so that makes it very hard to sort out what is happening at any given time unless we're looking at something like Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, which just factors out inflation's impact on bond yields. It allows us to look at real bond yields, quote unquote. And uh, what we see in terms of real bond yields is fairly striking. They are very low and, um, you know, right in line with their lowest levels post-pandemic. And the inflation implications have, on the other hand, spiked up to their highest levels, post-pandemic highest levels since the 1990s. And uh, all that to say that the logical things are happening. It's just that opposite forces are sort of playing off against one another. Uh, And that happened throughout the week. We were able to see logical correlation between stocks and bonds for most of the week as well. And that's also what we'd expect when the market is focused on uh, trading broad strokes of risk. And it really pushed almost everything else to the sidelines, including the jobs report on Friday. Uh, The only exception would probably have been Powell's uh, congressional testimony, and that was a two-day event. It was on the calendar. It wasn't, you know, scheduled for any special reason. And I think the market was looking for Powell to maybe be a little bit more conciliatory about all of the drama that was going on. He did say that yes, the Ukraine situation could affect monetary policy, but he firmly promised that first rate hike in March and said the, you know the Russian economy doesn't really affect the U S economy very much. I'll leave it to the audience and, you know, and anyone else to determine if they think he's right or wrong about that, but coming from, and I think the market was maybe wanting Powell to uh, be a little bit more concerned about the situation and to not say one particular thing he said, which is the fed certainly could hike it at 50 bips a meeting for a certain meeting or two, but he was not saying that in reference to the March meeting. Nonetheless, uh, Wednesday was ugly for the bond market, one of the sharpest spikes in yields that we've seen in a long time, but notably only made possible because Monday and Tuesday combined to equal uh, the biggest 48-hour drop in yields since the start of the pandemic, and one of the biggest 48-hour drops in decades. You know, it's in a, it's in a class with maybe 10 other 48-hour blocks of time that have moved that much. Same story with mortgage rates, by the way. Um, Yeah, a lot of volatility for mortgage rates, big changes in rate sheets from day to day. That uh, is probably the rule instead of the exception for the time being. Uh, This week, we are starting out just a bit weaker, but uh, pretty close to last week's better levels. Rate sheets don't reflect that right now because we were a bit weaker earlier this morning. And uh, from here on out, really just waiting for developments on the geopolitical side. We don't have any major economic data until Thursday, which brings core CPI. Well, it's not called core CPI. It's called CPI, but we are focused on the core component. Uh, It was a big market mover last time. Could do the same thing this time around. And then uh, consumer sentiment on Friday does have inflation expectations as a part of that report, but those aren't something that the market has been trading very aggressively recently. So look for more volatility ahead and uh, for the market to continue to be dictated by the situation in Ukraine and then for a long, confusing process of determining how that's all going to shake out 
in terms of the global economy and the inflation implications of rising commodity prices. You know, Matt, as I look at this, uh, you know, I, I think it, it certainly makes Powell's job of a smooth landing very difficult. With oil at, what, $118, $120 a barrel right now, and oil such a pervasive component in our economy, you know, I mean, food has to get delivered to grocery stores. People have yep. to, you know, what does this guy do? I mean, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to be in Powell's shoes right now as he's trying to, uh, you know, weigh the fragility of the economy, you know, with all these sanctions that have been placed and, you know, the impact of rising oil prices on inflation through so many aspects uh, of, of the consumer's life. How does he manage this, Matt? <laughs> well, yeah, that's a great question. And, and interestingly enough, I'm hearing a lot more of that this morning than I did in previous weeks. Uh, and I would say in previous weeks, the word stagflation had come up quite a bit. But it hadn't come up in my preferred circle, um, if you will. It, it still wasn't really an idea that had taken root as a legitimate risk based on what we've seen so far. And now as oil is getting you know, up to 130 a barrel overnight and now one, still at 120 right now, um, there's more legitimate consideration about stagflation, especially in Europe, especially in Germany. And um, I've seen good arguments against it, uh, but more people are starting to talk about it and that may be the end game to some extent at least you know maybe not as it was in the past but a, a diet coke version you know i haven't heard stagflation being used since i guess jimmy carter's administration so it it harkens me back to the late 70s and and and, and early 80s uh, but uh i think you you know hit it on the uh, head when you said volatility uh, you know i mean the equity markets have certainly suffered greatly uh, since the beginning of 2022. Uh, no relief in sight there. I mean, there may be some, you know, rallies, but, uh, you know, as long as we have uh, inflation, you know, as, uh, you know, and, and that's assuming that the war in the Ukraine doesn't escalate any further from a weapon standpoint right. than what it is now, but, you know, uh, Jerome, I guess you got to really, you know, earn your money now. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. Man. I was watching a uh, YouTube video last night of airplanes landing with crosswinds greater than 40 miles an hour. Um, I think uh, that's the approach that um, Jerome's got to take to this economy, kind of bring it in sideways and then right before you yeah. touch down, up. Yep, I agree 100% with that. It's uh, he's going to have to thread the needle. Well, thank you, Matt. Uh, you know, for our listeners, Matt Graham, uh, founder and CEO of MBS Live, uh, with his uh, market updates, and you can learn more about Matt's great services at mbslive.net. Uh, use LOL as the sign-up code to get an extended trial, uh, and no credit card required. Thanks, Matt, for uh, being part of the show today. Thank you, Zach.
Alice Alvey, uh, uh, you know, couldn't be with us today. Um, she had some business commitments uh, that um, uh, she had to fulfill. Uh, we always uh, like Alice's legislative update, and we appreciate so much uh, Union Home Mortgage lending us Alice on a weekly basis. Uh, thank you, Union Home, for that. Um, Alan Pollack, um, uh, or do you have uh, your tech update and hopefully – uh, something to make us laugh today. Oh, Jack. One, congrats. This is uh, is a big deal, I think. Um, so uh, you're doing a great job so far. It's, uh, I'm sure our listeners love hearing your voice. No one will ever replace David Licken, but it's uh, – and we love the banter between both of you, but this is great. But, yeah, I've got some great stuff, Jack. Uh, this, this one's great. It's called MyFridgeFood.com. And uh, you can go to this website, you can put in whatever you have in your fridge or whatever you'd like to, to use to make something, and then it tells you all the options that you can have with it, whether it's a peanut butter and jelly sandwich or a pasta with ketchup. Um, it sounds very, very millennial, but it's really not. It has some pretty cool recipes, uh, but that's, that's my interesting technology tip of the day. So it's, it's called myfridgefood.com. Uh, you may want to check it out later. You never know what you can find. The other thing, Jack, I wanted to focus on, you know, I talked about Access Lending Academy last time and, and how much we need to help educate the next generation to get into this industry and how hard it is for technology to, to any industry, really, but especially mortgage technology, because you need so, so much of the train tracks you need to have access to to drive your train down those tracks. And, um, you know, if you think about how do we help other folks get into our industry or how do we open positions to allow people to move up that we may have brought in. One is Code Academy. And I'm just talking about technology. We talked in the past, Google's got a program where uh, many folks or many institutional lenders in our industry are hiring right out of Google. Well, CodeAcademy.com is an online learning center that you can go. Um, your staff can go here. It's very inexpensive. So if you wanted to provide them a corporate scholarship or sponsorship rather uh, for them to do that, you can. And they can learn all types of things about coding. And you know what's really big right now, Jack? Data science, right? Being able to determine how does, how, do, how does the data work and what's the story that data can tell. And if you relate that to everything we're doing, right, whether it's, it's the fall-off rates from origination or from CRM touch points to application, application to operations to closing, what is the data you're going to look at? And if you were to put some folks possibly through this program, Think about all the analytics that you could have. And that's just one area, but that's the Code Academy. The next thing I want to talk about, Jack, really exciting. Every year we've got the Housing Wire Tech 100, and we've got the 2022 honorees. There is a, a, a huge group of amazing technology solutions in our industry. Open Close, where I work, uh, we, we are one of them. But they range from, and I'm just going to name a couple, um, Loan Logics to Lodestar to Accelerate, one of our sponsors, to Ice Mortgage Technology, uh, HomeBot, FormFree, another one of our sponsors, um, Finicity, FinLocker, Doma. And so you can go just Google Housing Wire 2022 Tech 100, and you'll see a list of these 100 fantastic technology companies. And uh, take a look at some of the solutions they have. The links go directly to their websites if you want to learn more. Uh, I want to also talk today, Jack, a little bit about fraud. 
Uh, fraud seems to be a big thing. And the reason I bring this up today is I wound up having a very unique fraud situation happen to me recently. I got a text message from one of the banks I use is TD Bank. And I got a text message from TD Bank that, that disguised as a TD Bank phone number. So if I click it, it said TD Bank and it called them. But the text message said that um, we've noticed fraud on your account and um, reply yes or no to confirm um, if, you want, if you want us to, um, to block this. And so I said, yes, please block it. And then I get a phone call. And they said, I'm so-and-so from TD Bank. And they started asking me information. Now, my, my risk radar is always up, and I, I quickly caught on. But they basically started saying that someone logged into my online account, tried to send a Zelle money wire, which is Zelle, as everyone knows today, is P2P. And it basically, um, they started asking me to confirm social and other information, which I stopped doing. I immediately called the bank. And what they said is that that is a typical fraud call. And, it, you know, if you had given them too much information, they could have called us, pretended they were you, and gotten access to your account and then really sent us all. So certain banks have certain access and limits to that. But I mention this because as a lender, you may want to have a communication that you send out. Just like if you're staying at a hotel and you get a reminder that says, I hope your stay is going great. Don't forget that, you know, we've got these different amenities for you. As a lender, you should almost think about due diligence as a relationship and a good way to remind your borrowers that they're in a very unique time of their lives, working on the largest transaction they've ever had, and technology has advanced so much that please be aware that your bank will usually never do this, will never ask you to wire money this way, um, and just keep, keep them on their toes, right? That may be one good suggestion. The other thing I wanted to mention about fraud. Uh, as you think about that communication plan, the FBI um, has an entire section called Financial Institution and Mortgage Fraud, and they focus on all the different areas that fraud occurs. And I'm just going to list one or two. You want to Google this and check it out. We can also provide the link. It's just at the FBI website. Um, but foreclosure rescue schemes, loan mod schemes, illegal property flipping, um, equity skimming, um, they call home equity conversion, HECM fraud, and even air loans. And I've never heard of air loans, Jack. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's basically no. a loan where there's usually no collateral. And these are all ways that borrowers are being tricked into doing something when they're sometimes either in a desperate situation or there's a lot of clouds with the way that the market and everything is, and they're looking for someone to help and help guide them. So think about technology is fantastic, right? Operationally, there's all these great tech solutions, but let's communicate with our borrowers. Let's communicate with our tech vendors, and let's, let's just manage expectations. I think that goes a long way. You know, that's really interesting, Alan. I mean, all of us have gotten that text alert uh, that, you know, uh, focuses on uh, a potential transaction and, uh, you know, please reply yes or no. And to hear that that text alert is actually, you know, the fraudster that's trying to perpetrate fraud is pretty scary. But I think you bring up, you know, a, a very important point. And, 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 and that was, you know, these borrowers are going through, for most, for the large majority, the most important financial transaction that they will do during the course of their life, and that is, you know, buying a home. 
are refinancing. And that makes them a target for fraudsters. And to you know, have a conversation with each and every borrower about be alert, be vigilant, here's how we're going to behave during this process. And if you see behavior that is outside of, of this box, be wary and, you know, pick the phone up, call your loan officer or call your designated point of contact uh, at the origination company and, and check it out before acting on it. Uh, you know, I don't know many mortgage companies that do that, but in this day and age where cybercrime is so prevalent and consumers are so vulnerable at this critical financing event that they're going through, you know, now's not the time to, to drop your guard and, you know, messaging to the client, you know, just to be wary as you progress through any transaction of this size. I think it's really an important message, Alan. Yeah, I, I, I thanks for accentuating that, Jack. I, I would agree. And you know, here's something that's really interesting, and and I can send this to David. We can get this posted. It's called the time it takes a hacker to brute force your password. And and this doesn't even go. You know, you could share something like this with your borrowers, but it also goes for your organization. These hackers, they get into your account, whether it's Google or your um, your iCloud account. And they track it. You don't know they're in it. They watch, and they watch for different financial transactions. Well, get this. If you were to have a password that was, let's say, eight characters long, which is pretty big, right? That's more than usually your, just your first name or just your last name. And you were to have just a, a, a whole set of numbers, um, hackers can brute force your password instantly. If you were to mix it up and do uppercase letters and lowercase letters, at eight characters, they can brute force your password with a script that runs in two minutes. And if you were to actually have numbers, uppercase and lowercase letters and symbols, and it was only eight characters long, they can brute force your password in 39 minutes. So obviously technology is great, right? But we need to be reminded, and maybe, maybe part of that message is to remind your borrowers they're in a very unique time in their lives, and there, there is a sensitivity to these financial transactions. And maybe it's good to remind them to change your password. Here's some steps if you don't have a strong password. More than happy to chat with anyone if you have any questions. Um, and, and, of course, if you know anyone that's looking for uh, employment in the industry, um, David, myself, uh, we get contacted with people they're looking to hire. So please reach out to us, and uh, we'll get those articles and uh, the password, brute force password guide. Um, also share, Jack, and we can get that out to everyone. Thank you very much, Alan. Uh, okay, my password's uh, 13 characters uh, um, with uh, numbers and special signs. How long does it take them to brute force that? So your 13 characters and your numbers and symbols, it will take 202,000 years. So you are in a great situation. But if you take exactly what you have and you lower that to 10 characters from 13, they can brute force it in five months. So think about that. If you haven't changed your password in five months and you've got 10 characters with numbers, symbols, uppercase, and lowercase, somebody potentially in the last five months could have hacked your password. Okay, listeners, 13 is the number. Uh, 
to contact Alan, uh, you know, you can you can reach him at Alan at TMS uh, Advisors dot com. Alan, thank you very much for the weekly tech update. And this is the end of our weekly mortgage updates on this section of the podcast. If you're listening to us on a downloaded basis, you can check out the next episode for our Hot Topics segment. And in today's Hot Topic segment, as David mentioned earlier, uh, we have a pre-recorded Hot Topic with Chris Zingo, uh, General Manager of America's Field Operations at Finasco. And He'll discuss mortgage lending in 2022, as well as driving growth through ESG. Uh, uh, ESG to me means environmental, social, and corporate governance, and the acceleration of digital technology in the mortgage world. Thank you very much. Uh, We appreciate you as listeners, and uh, now we'll move into the next hot topic segment. Folks, I'm excited to have joining us the general manager of the Americas. Doesn't that sound incredible? And this individual is incredible. I met him in Austin, Texas. His name is Chris Zingo. Chris, good to have you joining on the podcast. Appreciate you taking time. Great to be here, David. Thank you. General manager of the Americas. That's just, that's pretty impressive. I love that. It's blocking and tackling. I mean, serve your customers well, good things happen. Yeah, it's, I love it. Reduce it down to that. <laughs> I want to talk a little about mortgage lending in 2022, and we're talking about driving growth through ESG and the acceleration of digital technology. I know a lot of independent mortgage bankers, which make up a lot of our listeners, we have small community banks, which I had the privilege of speaking or moderating with a number of your executives in San Antonio on Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock in the morning. Only independent community bankers would be going to session at 7 o'clock. And the place was packed out, Chris. I couldn't believe it. So it was great doing that, but it's a real honor to have you as a sponsor as well as a partner in those podcasts. And I'm really interested in sharing your vision with everyone. And I want to start off by talking about ESG. A lot of people do not understand ESG as environmental, social, and governance. If you could talk a little bit about that, it's in a lot of your talking points when you're talking out and speaking to community bankers. So I'd like to get your perspective. What does Finastra mean by ESG? Well, environmental and social government has basic themes that wrap into it. But at a high level, we look at it in two dynamics. One is purpose-driven, right? And we talk about the the changing demographics and the changing demand of the end user in today's market. One of the things that is driving their demand is gravitating towards purpose-driven institutions that actually will have an impact on environmental or social governance in some way whether it's environmental impact in reducing carbon footprint, et cetera, whether it's social impact in terms of empowering underserved communities or unlocking capital into areas of the society not previously unlocked, those types of things. So high level, there are two elements. On the purpose-driven, if you look at Finastra, our purpose, our mission is to unlock the power of people and potential everywhere using our technology. And when you translate that to financial services, that means the democratization of capital, the ability to extend capital every leaf node or corner of our society. That's a purpose driven, but it's also financially smart. And you look at the concept of sustainability, significant untapped market associated with serving underserved communities, right? If you just look at the potential uh, of unlocking the ability to distribute capital to certain areas of our communities in the U.S. alone, we're talking about $800 billion opportunity, right? If we can break through the barriers in these communities that typically revolve around access to capital, but there's also a massive technology dependence, and that's where we come in. And if you look at the concept of sustainability, the way technology providers like us provide sustainability is by helping our clients offer innovative products and solutions for their markets at a much lower cost structure. And that's where the technology comes in. 
So if you look at just the concept of cloud and scale and the, and the broader open ecosystem of bringing innovation to banking, that improves the customer experience and lowers the cost. And that drives the extension of capital and sustainability. If you look at the ESG element of launching innovation in the form of new product, loans linked to social or environmental impact, those loans actually are issued at a lower overall cost based on the incentives of the impact in terms of where those loans are funding. And if banks can prove that, they can bring low-cost products to market very quickly. And on the flip side, if you look at the purpose-driven demand side, if you look at ESG funds, right, these are equity funds whose underlying components are institutions that have certain ESG standards that are transparent and proven. $18 trillion have gone into those funds in the last eight years. Wow. So on, on the demand side for institutions behaving this way, trillions of dollars are going in. On the flip side, from a financial institution perspective, there's a high demand and potential opportunity to launch innovative products linked to these outcomes at a much lower cost structure. And again, that drives sustainability. But the reality is you're talking about a purpose. And I think there's so many people that lack a purpose. And a purpose is not just making money. That is the result. And I love what you're talking about there. We also want to talk about the acceleration of the digital technologies, and we're looking more and more at how lenders must offer customers a one-stop shop that delivers the proper expectation for the customers. And I love the fact that you have an open architecture. You are, I believe, the first technology company, leading technology company. You're the number one fintech company in the world. And you led the way with this, if I'm not mistaken, and that creates an integration. So talk about the customer's one-stop place. And as a vendor, what do uh, banks and uh, mortgage lenders need to think about in that concept? Okay, terrific. I think in general, we at Finastro believe the future of finance is open. And what that means in the current pace of technology innovation, we're Moore's laws on steroids. The mm, technology yes. innovation is, is allowing us to operate at a certain level of scale and allows participants to connect with a broader ecosystem, a technology ecosystem that enables rapid innovation, rapid deployment, and much lower cost deployment. So the agility required today to launch and evolve with those changing customer demographics is critical. And 90% of the innovation that we distribute to our customers are going to be developed outside of our walls. So we're transforming from the building, deploying, testing, deploying, UAT exit, all of that life cycle, we're changing to a consumption model where we will connect the broader fintech ecosystem with our underlying banking service on the cloud and without the need for our customers to intervene, which means we can bring back to them innovation that they can consume and extend to their customers as easy as going to the app store and buying banking capability, right? And that's the future of the way all technology is going to be distributed. And what that does is it gives a much better end user experience. It increases the velocity of banking services. It personalizes banking services. It provides a level of transparency to the end user not currently having. So all of those things can only be delivered on the cloud and can only be through a combination of banks connecting with the broader fintech ecosystem to provide technologies for their customers that have the right level of user experience, but also delivers financial services where their customer is, right. not where their bank is. I think that's uh, such a good point. I love what you're talking about with open architecture, the whole broader vision, but I think some might hear that as, does that open up and expose us to more cybersecurity issues? 
Talk about that. Well, I, anytime you're distributing capabilities via the cloud, there's always a risk. However, when you look at the current risks associated with the way technology is deployed, you know, whether it's on-premise and the bank's own data centers or whether it's via the public cloud, there's always some level of risk. But what we found is that the broader cloud platforms like Azure, which we have native capabilities, we're the 30th largest consumer of Azure on the planet mm. based wow. on the, the clients that we have running wow. on the public cloud. But what we found is Microsoft spends $1.2 billion a year in cybersecurity, right? Great partner not to have one, with that kind of budget. Not, not one individual client has that budget exactly right. to invest in cyber. We don't. They have a broader ecosystem, which is accessible to us, right? So being part of the public cloud, we have access to state-of-the-art cyber capabilities. We have access to state-of-the-art ecosystem providers, right, to protect against things like fraud and other elements. So our security platform is much more bolstered by being on the public cloud as much as it is potentially risk. And then if you look at the traditional risks of fraud associated with legacy technology, I mean, you have to worry about physical data centers. Physically, people break in and right. steal data. You have to worry about the lack of cyber capability that are compatible with your existing architecture, right? So patterns are changing every day. Being on the cloud and being able to maintain cyber protection that's current that picks up all the heuristic patterns of malware and things like that. You can't do if you have closed technology that you're updating every quarter, every six months, et cetera. So there are numerous elements that would suggest being on the public cloud and managing it using yep. state-of-the-art technology with continuous delivery is the only way to go, but it's not without risks. Yep. It's, it's really about educating our clients. Yeah, And it, it comes with, back to the partnership. You've partnered with a company that has spent over a billion dollars on cybersecurity, Microsoft. And did I hear you see you're 30%? We are the 30th largest consumer. 30th large, okay. Of cloud consumption on the Azure platform. That's amazing. Yeah. That is in itself. Let's talk about a lot of disintermediation that can happen. I want to get into why are the changing customer needs impacting disintermediation? Interesting. Disintermediation for the evolution of the kind of next generation fintech probably is been underway for the last five years, basically is launching knowledge innovation in the fintech space that is more favorable to the end user of traditional banks, right? Now, if you look at today, changing demographics is a big element of that acceleration yeah. of demand. Today is the only generation in our history where there are four generations of people in the same workforce, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, all in the same workforce. Never happened in our history, right? So their demands are rapidly evolving. Those individuals that were Gen X, Gen Z are now in commercial, in senior positions in commercial institutions, large corporate investment banks. So the demographics are different. They value different things, right? They value purpose-driven capability. Yeah. They, they value yeah. immediacy, real time. Uh, they value frictionless banking capabilities. They don't stand for it, right? They expect it to be served where they are. They don't mm -hmm. expect to have to do unnatural acts like walking into a branch to do a transaction or going into an online portal that's not connected to any other elements of their finance to do a transaction. They won't tolerate that. Exactly. Rapid adjudication, if they're originating a mortgage and they don't get immediate feedback and if they have to use documents and they have to use email and they have to burn cycles on that, they're going to go to somewhere else. And if you looked at what happened over the last few years in the United States alone, 63% of all mortgages 
are originated not by banks, but by fintechs now. That's amazing. Because of the things I said, rapid adjudication, frictionless yeah. experience, no documentation, or very minimal required. The average life cycle with those 63% is 10 days less from application to close than a traditional finance institution in the United States. Having done as much legal expert witness work as I have, I'm hearing you using adjudication. So break that down <laughs> a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, it's a fancy way to say the credit decisioning process. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I knew what you meant, but I want to expand on that. Thank so you. what are the kinds of differences should be accounted for when Gen Z or minority first home buyers are really entering the market, especially from a, your perspective on the technology, from fintech perspective? Well, Again, if you go back to that credit adjudication, I think that there are legacy credit procedures that banks manage to the T because that's all that they can do historically. That is basically non-inclusive. They're missing significant opportunity to underwrite really good loans to really good counterparties, right. but in the traditional credit sense, they wouldn't be considered that. Right. right. So connecting and changing your credit adjudication procedures and processes, expanding the data sets that you have access to from which you can personalize those to credit decisions rather than genericizing them. It can open up a significant capital pool from which you can lend to. And we're seeing opportunities like that happen in the market using tools like social networking, connectivity, AI, and other techniques. What are you seeing banks doing about this? Most of the things I'm talking about, banks are doing right? There's billions of dollars of capital invested in opening up their architecture, connecting with the financial services ecosystem. Many are accelerating their strategies around banking. With having the strong banking, you guys are so well entrenched into the community banking community and bringing that language over to many independent mortgage bankers, I think is really valuable. So I, I don't mind you doing that at all. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that in a mortgage, for example, is many institutions are thinking about, do I sell mortgages or do I sell home buying experiences? Yeah. Right. Do I want to sell a commoditized product, right, where I, I might yeah. not be able to compete with the level of digitalization as the third party? Or do I want to be in the center of my customers' financial exchanges associated with that entire home buying journey? So if I can embed financial capabilities into the ecosystem, of my customers, whether it's a Zillow, et cetera. I want to be present where they are every step of the way. I want to give them a listing of homes. I want to give them the comps. I want to give them immediate mortgage options with pre-approval digital, right? I want to suggest title insurance. And I want to be able to affect the fund transfer to pay for that title insurance and that entire experience. So that's what banking as a service is. It's really embedding, we call it embedded finance, but where we can extend financial services outside of the walls of bank digitally yeah. and connect it into their customer's ecosystem to create those journeys so that our clients, financial institutions, can be at the center of every one of those exchanges. And the mortgage market's a big opportunity for that. We talked about ESG, the environmental social governance, earlier, and we kind of touched on that. I'd like to have you go a little bit deeper into it, especially as it relates to banking technology and specifically lending. Sure. Yeah, so an example, we onboarded a, a new purpose-driven bank in the United States, Climate First Bank. They've got an environmental mandate in terms of a green bank. And the first thing that uh, we launched from the entire core banking and digital stack that we implemented when we onboarded them were solar loans. Hmm. Right? So loans linked to the financing of solar panels. Certainly connects with the environmental component of ESG. 
Absolutely. And those loans are offered at a lower interest rate, right? Because of the incentive for where those funds are going to find an environmentally dynamic of solar panels. So they launched it. And using technology, they're not only able to launch those loans digitally with low cost and at a lower interest rate because of the incentive, but a key element of it, they're able to track the impact and the outcome of where those funds are going. And they're doing it in our core banking system linked to our digital technology that's launching the loans. Really exciting. That is exciting stuff. When you look at where the next wave of innovation is coming from, we had Karen Jenkins on. I was so impressed with that interview when she talked about where you are, the design, the whole product drive. It was really interesting. I'd love to get your perspective on where you think the next innovation is going to be coming from to afford lenders more of a competitive advantage in the marketplace. And how is Finastra specifically? Yeah, again, I think it really is about how can they connect to their customer's ecosystem right, in a scalable way to allow their customers to transform the experience of, say, for example, a mortgage application process. Right. Right. So can I bring services to my customers where they are? Can I minimize or eliminate the customer need to, to illustrate documentation? Right. Can I connect into their ecosystem? Right. So I already can verify their income. I already know what their asset bases are. I already know what their current credit profiles are. Like all of those things should be known in real time. And can I use that to speed up the entire life cycle of that experience? Can I use that to give them an optimal rate, right? Because I'm personalizing their experience. All of those things are opportunities, right? That can help unlock right. and create sustainable right. lending, right? They're market opportunities. Chris, I'm going to talk about your thoughts on rethinking the operating model of our companies, the way we're going about lending, especially in conventional mortgage lending. Should we be low to no touch or focus on resources or high-end value products? How should we be approaching it? Well, again, it really depends on the individual institution and their strategy. What do they want to be when they grow up? And I think that's the first question they have to answer themselves. But in general, I would say implementing a technology architecture and using current capabilities to give you optionality. What we're seeing is we're seeing um, a new operating model evolve that are segmented out by the customer segments and the products that they distribute. So there are certain types of loans, maybe conventional, Fannie Freddie, that should be zero touch. There are certain types of loans like jumbos and other that have other mitigating circumstances that are more bilateral in nature and might have an 80-20, right? So 80% of it is templatized and automated, and the FTE capacity is really around adding value to the client, personalizing that loan, getting to the right, right. structure. Then you have a third pillar that's typically fully structured, which always starts with some baseline. So we're seeing that the concept of flow business and the concept of moderate touch, and then the concept of high touch, those are three dynamics that are happening in every institution. It's really the weighting. But there's no reason if I'm doing a conventional Fannie or Freddie, right, which gets sold off my balance sheet immediately, there's no reason that that should be no touch 100% of the time, right? A very powerful end user experience. You're bringing up a great experience, especially for the first time home buyer. The millennials, there's all the studies show that they're not necessarily wanting to talk to you until they're ready to talk to you as a lender. They want to gain all the information first. But from that point on, they do want an advisor. And I think that's one of the things that you're trying to get to when you're talking about adding high value. We talked about this down in San Antonio at the ICBA conference. And I think it was Peter brought up a point that was we're needing to see ourselves transition from 
providing a mortgage loan. Who wants a mortgage loan? They're trying to buy a house. The mortgage loan is just a means to the, the ultimate goal. But we are finding more and more people are wanting strong advisor. And I think that's a high value. Yeah. And I would say, David, the, the baseline we tell our people internally, as well as our clients, if your resources are spending their time talking with their customers and answering how-to questions, it's a waste of time. Those people touching the customer should build upon the transaction that's already digitized to then talk about, let's talk about the implication of the decisions you're making right now. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about ways to optimize this. The base elements of just facilitating a transaction, right, using bank speech is very low value add. And as a matter of fact, it's offensive to the new demographic client that they're serving. So if you're talking about how to, as it pertains to a transaction in any form, you're missed the boat. Yep. That's a really good point. You basically automate the base elements of those transactions. So Mm -hmm. then when a consultant comes in, they already know the information about you. They already know where you are in this transaction and they come with you with advice, right? And that's where the white glove treatment should be. Yeah. And this is enabled so much through technology, all the the really heavy lifting, the transactional part of it's there. That's done. We are adding what we should add, and that's the service component, the advisory role. I want to talk about reevaluating the end-to-end life cycle. In other words, if you have a mortgage and you're doing a standard refinance or purchasing, why is there a need (laughs) for a manual process? There is. But from your perspective as a technologist and a leader in the market, talk about that. Yes, because the current technology architecture of many finance institutions is a byproduct of the way they bought over the last 30 years technology. It's also a byproduct of the availability at the time, which the availability of technology in the last five years now is just very different than the previous 30 years. But it's also based on the way banks go to market and the traditional concept of channel. Channel is really just an opportunity to monetize every exchange an end user has with the bank. Their technology infrastructure aligned around channels because that's the way the business has bought and implemented technology. So the reality of it is there is a need for a manual process because when you go for a refi, the person that is facilitating your refi has no idea you already have a mortgage, most likely. So they have to ask you for the same information again. They don't have the horizontal 360 history as you as a client of the bank. If you were a small business of that same bank and you had a retail account, they would know you had a retail account. Or they wouldn't know you were a small business client. Now, that's changing, and many institutions are accounting for that. I'm, I'm making generic statements. But the reality of it is, it's inertia, and it's the fact that the systems, topology, and architecture don't support true horizontal 360 banking experience. That's where the cloud technology and the open innovation comes in, so that our banks can transform from that stove-type end-to-end channel to an omni-channel shifting from products to advice, shifting from a product to a client. So revolving their entire organization around a client is where they're going now. And part of the journey is the manual process is being adjusted because of how much technology can do. So we do need to go back and look at the manual process from a workflow standpoint. And I love how you guys really initiate and help your partners do just that. Exactly. For us to be successful, we cannot sell software in isolation. We have to sell a operating model wrapped around a business model and then baseline their current state with the future state operating model and collaboratively identify the changes we're going to make over an horizon and how what we're going to implement to get them to an end state. And when we do that well, 
Uh, that's the collaborative best. success we see. Yeah. It's the best outcome. If we simply fulfill our customers' requests for an LOS system or a POS system, we're not really going to be in the best position to add a lot of value. So we've really yeah. changed the way we go to market and we force the operating model discussion and business model. Then we back into the software. As we wrap up this interview, I want to talk about the purpose driven. That really resonated. And I want to leave our listeners with some thought leadership as the number one fintech company in the world and having the privilege of being the general manager of the Americas. I mean, I'm assuming that's everything from North America down to South America and everything in between. Mm -hmm. You have that responsibility. Talk about purpose and give us some examples you already gave us an example of the one bank, the green bank that really started up and doing the solar lending. Give us some other examples of what difference it can make when you identify, clearly articulate your purpose, and how it works with your strategy, especially when it comes to technology. Sure, absolutely. Well, if you go back to our mission of unlocking the power of people and businesses everywhere, with respect to lending, that's expending capital to every area of our society. Right? I think there's nothing more purpose-driven than empowering people with money or enabling the empowerment of money because that gives optionality. And when more people have access to capital, the overall pie gets infinitely bigger. Like most people think the pie is a finite and it's a zero-sum game. It's not. And technology innovation is making that pie scale even more exponentially than it is today. So the untapped potential of the current environment is massive. But whether your purpose is empowering underserved institutions, So, for example, minority banking institution, MBI. One of the areas that we tilted into two years ago, and this was during COVID, when the PPP program was launched, we support 575 SBA lenders. We already had the connectivity to eTran and the SBA platform. Prior to the PPP, we created an end-to-end capability to automate the application input and automate the approval and and automate the documentation and and execution using our ProSign So we empowered a lot of small institutions just with PPP because many institutions had to do everything manually. It was a bottleneck. So we sat in the middle of that. Now, what that gave us is we started to look where these PPP loans were going. And in the first round of the payroll protection funding, $349 billion of capital went in less than a week. Wow. It's really a grant that was issued Mm -hmm. through the financial institutions the first time ever. And what we saw is that most of the capital was first come, first serve, and it went to mature financial institutions serving mature commercial clients that had some level of connectivity and scale. Right. right? And they were able to serve at scale. So our owner, Vista Equity Partners, you know, the CEO. Right here in Austin, Texas, I might want to say. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Robert Smith is African-American and he's heavily involved in empowering underserved communities. Huddled us, started analyzing where this was going. So we identified this gap. So we partnered with the broader ecosystem like we had a, a series of key stakeholders representing the CDFI community, like Donna Gambrell, the CEO of Alliance of African-American CDFI Investors. Kenneth Kelly at the time was the CEO of the National Bank Association, which represents the 19 Black-owned banks in the United States. And we got together, and in the second round, we onboarded 13 beta clients for this lending in a box, right? the same PPP solution. But yeah. we launched it on the cloud, and we gave it to them at a very low cost. Actually, we, we gave it to them for nothing so that they can participate in the second round. And we found that they were able to sustainably support many of their clients, issue these PPP loans with the same headcount because they're very small in headcount. 
So we used that to say, okay, we're going to invest heavily in this market. And we invested post that with Microsoft to scale our technology and offer it out at very low cost, if not no cost, to certain institutions serving underserved communities. Now, what we found on the back of that is institutions that we work with during PPP, many of them developed a sustainable commercial client base off of that PPP program because many of their clients came to them because they couldn't get access to PPP in their existing bank because of the bottleneck. Right? So many of those institutions, because they implemented technology and they built relationships for tier one capital, they built a sustainable commercial business like Carver State Bank, like Harbor Bank in DC, where they have powerful commercial businesses off the back of that. And they're able to reinvest in their communities and reinvest in innovative loans because they're successful, because they have a sustainable lending program, for example. And that becomes exponential. So when you see the impact of that, it empowers us to invest more in this area. And by the way, if we do it right, we're untapping a segment of our markets that we never were able to address, right? And it's a win-win. We call it doing well Absolutely. by doing good. We yeah. will do well if our clients do well. And that's aligning that purpose is critical. Yeah. So, Where do you see lending specifically here two to five years out? You, you guys have a unique perspective. Obviously, more and more technology is enabling more and more. We're seeing more of the advisor role and less of the transactional role as it relates to the FTEs, the full-time employees. What's your vision? What's Finastra's vision? Well, I say, again, we want to bring financial services to the end user where they are. Yeah. and empower our clients to do that. If we do that, then we can create a frictionless banking experience at a much lower cost and much more optionality for our clients and their end users, right? which again drives sustainability because you're unlocking capital and opportunity. Right? So what do we see in the next three years? Well, those types of services come to the end user where they are. I'm talking whether they're in a native application that they use every day, mm -hmm. their social network. YouTube is the number one source of financial literacy for Gen Z's today? I did not know that. Not surprised by that. I spend YouTube's more time on YouTube now than I do on television. It's the number one source of their knowledge about banking. Wow, partner in, with in that. So what are the opportunities there, right, in terms of embedding certain financial capabilities, wow. right? The other thing is optionality, right? You're seeing innovation that's linked to POS. So when yep. I say where they are, POS, when they go to POS, right, buy now, pay later, that's a micro loan immediately adjudicated at the point of transaction, yeah. right? And that's providing optionality. And that's also giving certain financial institutions access to an SME market with a low risk profile and at more scale. This concept of micro lending, those are in place today. So there's no reason for certain transactions why the end user ever needs to touch any element of their finance institution, right? But what they do expect is the advice on the back. As soon as they touch that POS, there should be a call to them. As soon as they submit that mortgage application, right, and facilitate a few steps in microseconds, there should be a call to them, right? Changing the way our clients interact with their clients, adding the value. So we want to basically make the transaction like a light bulb. Yeah. People expect it to be on and expect it to work. Yeah. What you do with it above and beyond is your secret sauce as a bank. That's excellent. 
Well, Chris, we're out of time. I'll say this. I'm going to play on that word adjudication. You've adjudicated this interview really well. Well, I love this interview. It's so much fun to talk with someone who has the vision and can articulate as well as you do. Great to have you as a guest. Look forward to having you back soon. Please, I really mean that. I want to have you back soon. We've got to hear more of this kind of global perspective of what's going on. The big tech, you being the biggest of all the fintechs out there, have a unique perspective we can all learn from. Thanks so much for being here with us. Great. Thanks for having me, David. Anytime. Again, your energy is infectious. So thank you. Well, it's an honor to be with you, Chris. <laughs> energy feeds off of energy. So I'm getting it from you as well. All right. Very good. Thank you. Say a special thank you to all of our sponsors, Financial Lenders One, Mobility MMI, Modex, the MBA, Knowledge Coop, the Mortgage Cooperative, SnapDoc, Success Kit, Lender Toolkit, PennyMac, Total Expert, and Form Free. Have a great week, everybody. Forward to seeing you back here next week. You've been listening to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.